You heard reference last night to the fact that it was on August 24th, 1985, that my wife and daughter and I arrived at the Motel 6 on Bell Road, just east of the Black Canyon Highway, as it was known in those days. The price per night 36 years ago was a lot less than it is now. The temperature was very much like today, 115 degrees. A new record for that date, and our car overheated on the journey through the mountains of the high country. The last 50 or 60 miles of the trip were the most challenging that we faced. So it was 115 degrees. I, I like to think of that because, uh, you know, People get excited around here, it seems, every year at this time. Oh, it's so hot, it's so hot. Well, yeah, it is, it, it's hot. And it's been hot every year that I can remember. And it will be hot in the years to come. And global warming has nothing to do with it. The fact is, we live in a desert. We could not use our air conditioning that day in our car because we had to ensure that it wouldn't put the motor under strain. And so we descended, as you know, if you come back from the north, you descend at about milepost 244, 46, somewhere in there, you descend into the cauldron of the desert. That night, from our room, we observed the first dust storm of our time in Arizona. It was far from the last. The next day, we joined the congregation of Heart to Heart Bible Church for its worship services just down Bell Road from where we were staying. And among others we met that day in the church at Heart to Heart were the Adelots, Earl Sr., Earl Jr., and Inga, Greta Sanger, a close friend of theirs, and the Arnolds, Chuck and Betsy. And there were many others that we met, but those people became important later in the history of our work. We drew encouragement not only from the preaching of Dr. Arnold Hickok, but from the encouragement of his associate pastor, Reverend Dick Connor, and the fellowship of the Lord's kind people. The next day, we enrolled Carolyn in the first grade of Heart to Heart Christian Academy. That was one of our unknowns. How will she receive her education? So, she was in school from that first Monday that left us free to look for housing. It was the only school that she knew until she went to college. Before very much time passed, we received notice that someone 
paid the tuition for Carolyn for that entire academic year. And I learned last night who those people are, not going to divulge their names here, but I did not know until last night who they were. But we always took that as from the Lord. Early in 1986, in February, we launched the services of Phoenix Free Presbyterian Church, a mission of Faith Free Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And we met, for, as it turned out, for the first 11 and a half years of the church's history, we met in a portable classroom building at Moon Mountain School on 19th Avenue, south of Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. Now to recount all the developments of more than 35 years of labor for Christ in this church is far outside the scope of our meeting tonight. Some highlights. The visit of Dr. Ian Paisley, the moderator of our presbytery, came to Phoenix to conduct the Constitution service for this church and my ordination and installation as the minister on January 19, 1995. And he stayed in our house on 15th Avenue for a whole week. And we got more calls from the British consulate during that week than we ever had any time else. <laughs> Another highlight, of course, was the dedication of this building on September 25th, 2010, the permanent home for the congregation Still another highlight was the ordination and installation of Herb Chapler as a ruling elder in the church in April 2013. We have rejoiced in weddings and we have mourned the deaths of brothers and sisters in the Lord over the years. And I can see their faces in my mind and think of them with the Lord. What a legacy to be sitting here among the people of God and then to be in the Lord's presence. Since early in 2020, we have continued seeking the Lord in the face of the coronavirus pandemic that has taken more than three and a half million lives worldwide including some of our brothers and sisters in the Presbytery of Nepal. On September 11th, 2001, we faced along with all, all of our fellow Americans the shock of the acts of war that militant Muslims launched against our fellow citizens. Through all those events, and there were many others, we have maintained the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that not only in secular terms, but in religious terms, has gone mad. Now we come to the last night on which I will speak to you as your pastor. 
And we come to 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Paul wrote more words to the church in Corinth than he did to anyone else. Two epistles, both of them lengthy. That church had severe problems. If you have studied 1 Corinthians, then you know about some of those problems. The apostle labored tirelessly among the people in Corinth with the hope that they would establish a testimony for Christ that would promote the Savior's glory. Now Paul came to the close of his second epistle to the church in Corinth, and he reflected on all that had gone before, on the history of God's work in that city, where he despaired initially of seeing anything done for God. He reflected on all of the problems with which he struggled there, He had a last message for the people of that church. He urged the people of Corinth to make spiritual progress. In the words we encounter in our text tonight, the inspired apostle left for the Corinthians his parting words. And I leave them with you this evening parting words. If we read the pages of the Acts of the Apostles, we will find several scenes of extremely emotional farewells. When Paul told the Ephesian elders that they would not see him anymore, they didn't ask him how he knew that, and he didn't offer to them how, they, how he knew that. But they sorrowed most of all for that word that they would not see him anymore. And there were other such occasions, such as when Paul was on the way to, uh, to Jerusalem for that last time. And he met with believers on the shore. And there was a tearful parting there. The text before us this evening doesn't reflect a specific event like those, but it is an urgent reminder to the people among whom Paul preached and counseled. He left them with words by which they were to continue living as Christians and members of Christ's church in Corinth. Now, when we come to the text and to this farewell of Paul to them, it presents a bit of a problem. Preachers have been trained in homiletics, we hope, and they have been trained to uh, come up with neat little ways of organization so that people have a better chance of remembering. You know that... uh, When you speak to people, within 24 hours they have forgotten 90% of what you said. Within a week they have forgotten 99% of what you said. I know because I was a teacher 
at the university level. I, I know this by experience. And so preachers are taught to invent little devices so that that doesn't happen, but it still does. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, when he was far along in his ministry as a preacher, often went back and took sermons that the Lord laid on his heart and made some changes to them and preached them again, and no one ever knew the difference. But when we come to this text this evening, uh, I'm going to depart from homiletical instruction because this text has a very clear structure to it. And so we're just going to take the commands that we find here and the promise that we find here as they come. So the first one is, be perfect. Now, instinctively, we recoil from that command. But how can we be perfect? But there are apparently a lot of people who think that it's possible because a lot of times when I am conversing with people from businesses on the phone and I give them certain information, the response is perfect. Oh, that's perfect. They have no way of knowing if it is. I may have had some defect in what I told them. But we recoil from that command because we know we can't be perfect. It's hard to admit it sometimes, but we know we can't. But Paul was not speaking of perfection in that way. He was speaking of the perfection that parents try, sometimes with varying degrees of success, to impress on their children. Grow up. Grow up. The tragedy is, and I'm sure it was true in Corinth, that there are people who profess to be believers who have not grown up. They have not advanced in the way of faith. They lean on others. They lean on the maturity of others and trust that they will get by in life, in the church, on that basis. We find a description of people of this nature in the epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers. That is, the Holy Spirit is saying, here's a time when you sh enough time has passed that you should have grown up. You ought to be teachers of others. When for that time ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, that's the bottom line in this growing up, is the discerning between good and evil. 
There were people who professed faith in Christ in the past, in Corinth, who did not give evidence of growing up. They did not give evidence of being able to make that distinction between what is good and what is evil. Instead, they find their interests in the world around them. And for the people in Corinth, it was dangerous. Many of them became converts to Christianity out of deep wickedness. Out of sodomy. Out of adultery. Out of all other kinds of wickedness. Paul said, such were some of you. Some of you were in that situation. The fascination with the world around them was still there. And it proved to be deadly. Paul said to them, literally strengthen yourselves in your God. Strengthen yourselves. Grow up. And how were they to do it? It's fine for Paul to say to them, be perfect. But how were they to do it? By using the means that the Spirit of God provided to them. It's the same way that you are perfect, that you grow up. You use the means the Spirit of God provided. That is, they were to read the Scriptures. Not occasionally or casually, but read the Scriptures so that they absorb, so that they take in the truth of the Scriptures. They were to pray. They were to join with other believers in prayer. And they were not to forsake the assembling of themselves with other believers when it was possible for them to be present. Paul counseled them to take the influences under which they lived before their conversion to replace those with the influences that came from the means that the Spirit of God provided that would lead them to grow in godliness. And there is the goal for every Christian. And the, the, the thing about the goal is that you never get to the point where you can say, well, I think I finally made it. As soon as you have said that, you have given an indication that you have not grown up. So the question is, are you making progress toward Christian maturity? How do you react in the face of a crisis? What governs the way in which you think? Whether the crisis is in the church or in your family life or at work or wherever it may be. Do you draw your conclusions on the basis of that which pleases you? Some don't take seriously, and I'm sure this is true in Corinth, the responsibility of submitting to the rule of Christ over them as he mediates it in the work of the elders of the church. That's how Christ governs his church. But that submission 
Even though some people leave it by the sides, that submission is a mark of perfection. It's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of saying, I don't understand all the reasons for their decision, but I'm going to submit to it. Maturity is seeking the glory of God and the advancement of his cause, not the promotion of private agendas or personal opinions. As Paul wrote elsewhere in his words to the Corinthians in this same epistle, maturity is maintaining the lines that separate Christians from the influences of the world around them. So Paul considered the people in Corinth and judged by their actions that they needed the exhortation, be perfect, grow up. Parents assess the progress of their children by what they see their children do. The, the children may think that their parents have some other mystical or mysterious way of making judgments. But they just watch what their children do and they, they make the determination. This child needs correction so as to grow up. But how are you to be perfect? By considering Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ delivered that message to his disciples. Let us turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Verse 40. Jesus said, the disciple is not above his master. Oh, we need to keep that truth always before us. The disciple is not above his master. But everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. That is, the maturity, the growing up, is a reflection of the conformity of you. To Jesus Christ. We become perfect as we become more and more like Christ. Christ concerned himself always. And if you read the Gospels, and I, I certainly urge you to read the Gospels often, he concerned himself always with doing the will of his Father. Those who are like Christ concern themselves with doing the Father's will. In terms of the Gospels, I remember from my seminary days, Dr. Douglas, in beginning a course of lectures on the Gospels, used the illustration of Dean Bergen when he was a young student coming before one of the masters, the doctors on, on the faculty where he was and he asked him what he needed to do to prepare himself for the work of the ministry and the wise old man replied, well sir, I think 
that I should begin by reading the Gospel of Matthew. And then, when you have read the Gospel of Matthew, I should continue by reading the Gospel of Mark. And then after that, I should read the Gospel of Luke. And then after that, I should read the Gospel of John. And the point is that there in the Gospels, we find the way of conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, doing the Father's will. So now we come to the second command in the text. Be of good comfort. Now this sounds a little easier, right? Be of good comfort. What Paul meant, though, was that God's people should be calm and without anxiety, even in the face of the sorest trials. If they had to endure persecution for the sake of Christ, and no doubt some of the people in the church in Corinth were going to face that persecution, Paul's command was that they should be of good comfort. Their demeanor must reflect serenity and confidence. This command, instead of being easier, touches the part of our lives that gives us probably the most trouble. Because it's not hard to be of good comfort if everything's going well. If you have a big account balance at the bank, if your health is good, if everything is smooth at home and at your work, no problem being of good comfort. But this text applies to times of trial. When illness comes, when a loved one or friend dies, as has happened so many times over the last year and a little more, when cherished plans that you have spent time organizing collapse in dust. When children exhibit rebellion. When jobs suddenly vanish. When money is scarce. When hurtful comments come from others. In all of those times, Paul said to the Corinthian believers to be of good comfort. This command directs us to the comforter. The one who is called alongside to help. In all your tribulation, instead of focusing on yourself and riding the waves of your own anxiety, to discouragement and sometimes despair. Look to the one who is alongside you. Be of good comfort. Turn back in this same epistle to the first chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. I said recently, it seems like we've witnessed quite a few funerals in recent times. We've witnessed them online, but still they were for people that we knew and loved. There's very little that we can say to people in that circumstance, except may the comfort of Christ and his presence alongside you be your portion. What's the secret of the comfort? You may be thinking in your mind right now, well, I, I, you know, I try to stay calm, but I'm kind of a worrier, and I start to wonder what's going to happen next, and fear begins to rise within me that won't be able to keep control of the situation. And it is in those times that we lose sight of the reality of Christ's presence with us. Let us turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And verse 18. To the disciples in the upper room. They were very anxious because Jesus said he was going to leave them. And we read in the words of verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. Now that is a statement of Christ that is in the infallible book. He has said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Here is often the challenge to us. Do we really believe what Jesus said? There's great comfort in the awareness of Christ's presence alongside you. For after all, he is the one who said to his disciples as he was about to ascend to heaven that he will be with his people always, even to the end of the world. Be of good comfort. Now we come to the third command in the text. Be of one mind. The heart of the text is this command to be of one mind. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to agree on everything. In any congregation, you're not going to have unanimity. But what it does mean is to be united. That is, not to allow those things that create differences to drive wedges between believers. Be in symphony. A symphony orchestra plays, and there are all these different instruments in the orchestra, and if everybody in the orchestra did his or her own thing, the result would not be pleasant. 
But if all of the people in the orchestra, regardless of what they may think about what they are playing, if they submit themselves to the role of the conductor and to the music that they have all agreed to play together, then there can be beauty. As you know, if there was anything that marked the church in Corinth, it was the spirit of factionalism. I'm of Paul. Oh, yeah? I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm not of either one of those. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Peter. And then, of course, the pious party. Well, I'm not of any of those. I don't follow men. I am of Christ. But Paul said they were all carnal. And what was Paul's message to them here as he came to bid them farewell? Be of one mind. When the people of a local congregation consider that they all serve under the headship of Christ, and again I say, as Christ mediates his headship through the rule of his officers in the church, when they consider that truth, they cannot fall into squabbles. So if they do fall into squabbles, what does it mean? They're not considering that truth. How can so many people, just in a group of this size, how can so many people of differing backgrounds, different education, different views on any of a number of subjects, how can they be of one mind? Well, there's an answer. And we find the answer in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. These verses were burned into my mind during my seminary education. Let this mind be in you, which was also, let it be in you. Why can it not be in you? Well, you know, I, I have issues, I have problems, really? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There was Christ's mind. It was the mind of humility. And every trial that our church has experienced through the years has been because of the forsaking of that mind. That which marks the mind of Christ is humility. Humility. And that kind of humility leads to unity in the work of the ministry. It leads to unity in worship. It leads to unity in love for each other. And that unity, Paul was impressing upon the Corinthians, is indispensable to the advance of Christ's work. It's fundamental. And leads us directly to the fourth command in Paul's parting words, live in peace. 
live in peace. The believers in Christ, the members of the church, they are engaged in the warfare of the cross. And the problem so many times is in the atmosphere of that warfare, they allow themselves by de facto means to be joined to the other side in the warfare. That warfare tends to bleed into relationships in the church. God's people can live in peace only as they consider Christ, as they put Christ before them. For Christ has, as we have seen in our Romans 5 series, Christ has made peace between us and the Father, and he has made peace among us. The work of Christ on the cross secured peace and unity for his people. When we submit to the reign of Christ over us, and that is not an abstract concept, Christ reigns over us through his word, through prayer, through the sacraments of the church, through the, uh, th- through the work of the officers of the church. Christ reigns over us. If we submit to the reign of Christ, we will live in peace. Everybody's not going to be in complete agreement on everything. But it doesn't matter. Because if you live in peace and humility, then you can find the way forward. Paul urged the Corinthians basically to remember the words of Christ who said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Or literally, stop troubling your heart. Following these commands, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. We come to that last part of the text, which is the promise. Rest in God's promise. I tell you tonight that the God of love and peace shall be with you. Those who follow this text will enjoy the blessing of their reward. That is, they will know that God is with them. That God's presence is in their lives. Paul spoke here of the God of love and peace who appears to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these words bring us to the cross. The love of God is on display at the cross, as we saw in our Romans 5 series. The peace of God is on display at the cross. And this God of love and peace will be with his people. So the question tonight for you is, do you live in light of that reality? Paul's parting word for the people of the church in Corinth 
is my parting word for the people of this congregation. The God of love and peace shall be with you. The challenges are there. I tell you, when you think about the challenges, it can dishearten you. Because the age in which we live, and sad to say, a number of churches and religious institutions in this age in which we live are hostile toward the message of the gospel. If you stand for the gospel, you're going to encounter that hostility. So you may find your soul tonight laboring under anxiety. Well, here is the word of the Lord for you. The God of love and peace shall be with you. Paul said elsewhere, he planted the seed of the gospel. And he said that Apollos watered it. That is, he built upon that which Paul established. Apollos came along and did that. But who was responsible for the increase for the harvest? It was Christ who gave the increase. So we have labored here in all these years to plant the gospel seed. Now someone else we trust will come along to water it. But it's not a competition. Because at the end of the day, Christ gives the increase. So, let us be faithful to that service and know the happiness that comes to those who know that the God of love and peace is with them. And may that truth comfort your hearts during these days.